My name is Johannes LaCour. And lately I've been talking to a lot of people from my past. What's up, brother? I got a bottle, I got some chicken. You said bring a joint, so I brought some herbals. I've been talking about who I was in my 20s. There's a lot that I don't know about you. I mean, we all got complexities, but uh, I definitely think that you was probably more complex than most. And I've been talking about a thing that happened in 1997. Just last week in Chicago, a 13-year-old boy riding his bike was brutally attacked for no other reason but the color of his skin. 26 years ago today, March 21st, a little boy named Leonard Clark was beaten into a coma in Bridgeport just for being black. Today, Chicago, we welcome Yohan to the core. He's a writer from the South Side who's committed to telling stories of black Chicago from the ground. You might have seen him featured in uh, New, New, uh, New York City Magazine, Chicago Tribune, Inside Look, and Smithsonian Magazine. And he's here to discuss his heartfelt podcast known as You Didn't See Nothing. How you doing? Good, bro. I'm I'm real good, man. It's good to be here, man. Appreciate it. No problem. And then on board, got a very special guest with me today, Ariel Mahia, Vocalo Community and Audio Storytelling producer. And it's your one-year anniversary, lady. Oh, thank you, Biko. And <laughs> so glad you're here, Johans. What's up? Yes. Appreciate So right off back, I, man, this podcast, brother, you didn't see nothing. It's, it's beautiful to hear it, first and foremost, like the research you've done, the people you've connected with, and just the, the storytelling to let everybody know the history of what took place on this day 26 years ago. I got to give you another round of applause for that because it was beautiful to hear and it made me want more and more from your storytelling skills. So, I mean, I, I got to know, man. Tell us a little bit about how you became a street journalist. Man, my man, thank you, man. Thank you for the praise, bro. It's appreciated. Um... So I've been a writer, like, kind of since forever, man. My father had me reading Time magazine at two and three years old. My Take me to uh, family reunions. They thought I was some sort of child prodigy genius because I'm, you know, reading Encyclopedia Britannicas for the family at three, right? I didn't know what, what none of it meant, but I knew where the commas and the periods were and how to pronounce everything. And so, so I've been in love with books and reading, and I was a bookworm as a baby, you know? Um, and so writing just followed. And so I was, you know, I was writing raps and poems and little comic books and all type of stuff coming up. Um, and so then, you know, once I got older, uh, man, I, 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 I would write, I had a friend of mine, <clears throat> his name was, uh, Jabez Bishop, may he rest in peace. His mama, um, Diane Bishop started a, a magazine, an online magazine called NSYNC Chicago. And I did like some fluff pieces for that. It was just really exciting to get published somewhere. Um, but I hadn't written anything that had been published that was like, but so serious. Um, then when in uh, '97, when um, when Lenard Clark was attacked, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Rasan Gordon, um, who was like a phenomenal lawyer writing that, doing his thing, um, he called me that morning. His his, you know, his, this is the son of Panthers, and he come from the struggle. You know what I'm saying? So he called me that morning, like, um, and told me what happened, mm-hmm. and uh. And so we was just outraged. And so we went um we actually initially our first instinct was to, you know, go go put hands on somebody. And um and that ain't you know, it just didn't work, man. You know, you got five, six black dudes rolling up in Bridgeport like they not yeah. gonna see us coming. I don't you know, so we was we was on one. What made you change the initiative of going from putting hands on somebody to putting words on that pad? 
my father and 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 uh the attempt to put hands on somebody wasn't working we got over there and we were just outnumbered and so we went home <laughs> so y'all kids still try to put some hands on. oh yeah we tried it we tried it um but yeah it ain't it, ain't, it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna work for us so uh so no nah, so i went home but it was still you know i was still i was still uh very upset you know what i'm saying very angry and uh, my father, obviously, like I tell you, he 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 taught me how to read, so he knew I was a writer. So he told me I should write about it if I was, you know, that passionate about doing something about it. And he put me in tune with a, a local newspaper called the South Street Journal. Mm-hmm. It was run by a brother named Ron Carter, um, out of Robert Taylor Holmes, who uh, who was also just passionate and had seen so much and wanted to create an outlet and do something with his own anger and and, and emotion around, you know, how we've been getting treated. Um, for so long, and so, so yeah, and so I got, I got with him, and um, he, uh, man, he was able to put me in tune with everybody I needed to talk to, to, uh, to report on this story, man. That was, that was the beginning of my, um, my, my street journalism career. I love this show so much. I just want to say, Thank and you. there's a line that I really love, and it kind of to follow up what you're talking about is you ask, you're asking, first of all, you ask a lot of questions. Um, as the narrator, as a storyteller, which I think is so beautiful. And one of them is like, what's the difference between a journalist and a snitch? And you move through that. And I kind of just wanted to hear more about that question and why you asked that and what that what that really means. Yeah, that was that was kind of deep. Um, I want I want to just backtrack two, 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 two or three sentences in terms of you um, applauding all of the research that I did. Um, man, I had a team uh, that was just amazing. From the Invisible Institute, the audio podcast team there. Uh, Can you uh, explain what the Invisible Institute is? Oh, I'm about to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the Invisible Institute. It's a uh, it's a journalism organization on the south side of Chicago, and they are dedicated to um, reporting out stories and, and and basically fighting through journalism uh, for Black folks, Brown folks, people in Chicago, people who getting they they their human rights violated uh, mainly by police, but generally. You know, by the conditions in general. Um, and so uh, Sarah Geis, Erissa Apantaku, Bill Healy, Dana Brozos Kelleher. I mean, that was like, I tell people, like, they were my Dr. Dre. You know what I'm saying? You see you see rappers talk about how Dr. Dre got them right. You know, Snoop got in the studio. He told them how to rap and when to drop the punchlines and when to hit this on that beat or whatever. They were my Dr. Dre and um, Allison Flowers and, and Jamie Calvin. Uh, who 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 uh, kind of you know basically kind of operate run and operate founded the Invisible Institute, oversaw a lot of the project, and so it was no way you know um, the story that, that that people have fallen in love with uh, could have come together without them. Um, but in terms of uh, to address the journalism snitch, yeah, like kinda, about truth conundrum. and telling the truth and finding the truth, you know. Yeah, was well, you know um, for me having done so much time in the joint and so much time prior to that just on the streets hustling, you know you you. One of your um, one of your number one enemies becomes snitches and rats. You know, what I mean, there is a code, and I respect that code even to this day. Um, if I if, if you and I uh, concoct a plan and I get caught and I tell on you, so I don't you know face whatever punishment I got coming, which I knew I would have had coming. That's that's rat business activity, you know, um, and I don't respect it, and so. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you and I haven't concocted a plan together, um, but uh, but I put my nose in your business and send you to prison or find, get you punished for something um, that I may have done myself, even or or that I, you know, that I that I'm not that I'm not threatened by, um, that's snitch activity, you know. Um, 
And so it's so yeah, and so and and then you can you can you can take it too far, honestly. You know what I'm saying? You can um, you can go too far. Uh, but when you're talking about, um, you know, snitching and ratting, as we know it, is about telling the police on people, and the police are just um, they're an enemy of peace. Um, and so that they're not, you know, what they've been made out to be or what they claim to be or profess to be. And so sending anybody to the joint for me is is just it's unthinkable. Um, and so as a journalist, though, you're uncovering crimes and you're uncovering um, stories that, that will lead to, that could lead to, to folks' punishment. Um, and so in this particular case, in this particular situation, and, and then, you know, my father also told me the devil is in the details, right? So I'm not the guy who feels like if there's a rapist next door to me that I can't handle myself, I'm just going to let him go because I don't want to tell them. I'm, I'm not him. Right. However, I don't know if I call the police, I might call the gas. You know what I mean? But that's just, you know, that's my Chicago way. Anyway, um, this particular situation, uh, yeah, I, I, I felt like um, going too far into a, uh, an investigation of a murder that, that, that was associated with this story would have likely sent, um, could have possibly sent some black men to prison who uh, who I think were just used as pawns. And it goes back to another question that the brilliant Marsha Chatlin brought up in the podcast, which is about black life being a series of negotiations that force us to evaluate what our life is worth. And I feel like from everything I could see from the little research that we did do in terms of this, uh, this crime, um, the brothers who... Uh, may have committed it, whom I don't know because we didn't investigate far enough to see because I didn't want to know at that point, right? Um, Because the journalist, uh, as you probably also heard, it it was Jamie Calvin who runs the Invisible Institute who basically was kind of like, you know, if you find out uh, who committed a certain crime, it's your obligation as an ethical journalist to say something. And so if if I don't know, I can't tell. So I just, you know, continue to kind of mind my business there. Um, But to make that this long story short, I felt like uh, the brothers who who could have been um, implicated in this crime were probably men who were uh, forced into those negotiations to figure out what their life was worth, and so they were pawns. And I I didn't want I didn't want no partner. Now, before we jump into this break, uh, with the Lenar case taking place, do you feel like that helped you understand more what journalism was and is? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and and more than that, man, all of these years later, it's, it's helped me understand how far journalism has come, and what it can be. Um, you know, the, with 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 the advent of social media, um, and all of these uh, means through which we can, you know, push our voices to so many different ears. Um, journalism is something that it wasn't in 1997. 1997, man, you know, um, around cases like this, at least, truth tellers, I would say, if they weren't silenced, their voices were just omitted. Right, because there was no way. Looking back, man, it wasn't just my young pride. There's no way I'm uncovering the type of details and facts around this case I was uncovering, and it doesn't make bigger headlines. The president of the United States was talking about this case. So then you got you got a a, a local newspaper out the projects with with some black kid at a black run newspaper finding out that there are three more attackers than you knew of, and this doesn't this doesn't this news don't hit nobody. It don't get nowhere. You know what I mean? So I was I was frustrated, and um, I was done with it. I was like, you know, it, it doesn't work, man. I want to have an impact. You know what I'm saying? I was making money in the street 
I, I would have loved to replace that 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 revenue, that income with legal income, with doing something like this. But not if it wasn't going to have no in, impact. I could have stayed in college and just worked for somebody and made them some money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I was I was frustrated and done with journalism. Until I came home, and like I say, like you know, uh, I, I I got in tune with the Invisible Institute, and they and they ain't the only, you know, journalism organization. You and you got you got road journalists online now. I mean, you can just do a lot more. It's a lot more information being spread. But I can say, uh, the research and they they do there, and the credibility is 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 amazing. And so yes, yeah, um, it, it feels good to 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 be in a place where uh, where where real journalism is really happening and really effective. So right now. Uh, we're going to play a little clip from the show. We just talked about an article Johans wrote. After that draft, he thought he'd get some attention from other journalists in Chicago because the article contained facts he hadn't seen reported anywhere else that did not happen. And instead, some other folks came with some unwanted attention. Here's a clip. A couple days later, I went back to the South Street Journal office to grab more copies of the paper. I didn't have a driver's license at the time, so Earl, my playwriting partner, he drove me. He had this magenta mercury tracer. We used to call her Tracy. Yeah, man, we pulled up at that spot. I never forget, in my red tracer. It was future. We pulled up on that spot, and I'm like, they looking for you? I'm like, hold on. I see like four or five guys, Italian-looking cats, big old white dudes. Now, they're across the street getting out of their car. They were in like a dark Crown Vic or a Lincoln Continental or something. It's real out of place because they're the only white dudes for blocks. And they ain't mailmen or nothing like that or cops. It turned out my article did get some attention. Just not how I was hoping it would. Hearing that, my brother, hearing that, like how before we came in uh, to the break, I was asking you about, like, you know, did you learn more about journalism from, you know, taking the case? Now... We see that the journal, the, the the report was so impactful, got me in looking for you. So for, for you, you know, knowing that your article had reached, you know, reached literally, how was that for you knowing that, oh, man, I done put together something and now my life could possibly be on the line for doing this? It was uh, it was exciting. Um, I mean, well, you think about what excitement <laughs> means, you know, what I mean, excitement gets your heart beating faster. You know, what I mean, it was exciting. Um. I wasn't a stranger to, to to danger or excitement. I was in the streets already, but uh, but you know, man, I had always felt like, man, you know. So I'm young. I'm 23. I'm listening to way too much Tupac, drinking way too much <laughs> Hennessy, and smoking way too much weed. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, we it was a crazy vibe in ninety in 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 ninety seven. Um, fresh off Pac, he had just passed, so now we riding extra hard, and his whole. You know, if you remember, man, Pac and Big, they had their their thing was dark, man. If I die tonight and death around the corner, and so, you know, you thought about and considered, you know, your mortality daily, especially if you was in the streets. So, honestly, it's like, well, if 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 I was to go out, I'd I'd rather go out in a battle for black people than with black people. You know what I'm saying? So it was a crazy feeling. At the same time, it was sobering, like, oh, it's real. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I. We wanted to go lay hands on somebody. That didn't work. I'm writing. I'm thinking I'm taking the square route and here we, the, the the straight and narrow kind of route. And here we are in 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 uh dealing with, you know, some some threats and some possibilities that that's deeper than what we had planned for when we was gonna fight fire with fire. So, um it was a mix of emotions, man. 
I mean, I'm pretty sure it was. Listening to episode two, I, I felt it. Like, you, you, you can literally feel the, what you went through. And not even just what you went through, what the family of, uh, of Clark went through. You know what I'm saying? The Clark family. So, I, I, I got to know, too, like, with putting together, you didn't see nothing. Um, break down why it's important for the community to know about this day here. Man, it's important, it's important to know about this day because it, it keeps repeating itself. It's like a Groundhog Day for us. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like I tell people often, Lennar wasn't the first of his kind and he wasn't the last. And we have seen he was actually fortunate to have, to have not been murdered because he could have. His life was hanging in the balance for days after the attack. We didn't know if he was going to survive. So we just got to thank God he did, right? But um, there's so many black men, women, and children who, who haven't. And this, this story is playing out similarly over and over again and has been. And so it's important to hear this story. Uh, one, because today, I think it, I think it, it uh, gives, sheds light on the fact that today we got more tools than we had then. Now we fighting bigger forces also because they got them tools too. But at the end of the day, you know, um, it's, it's important to know uh, how this thing has been has been playing out, so we know how to read it when it's happen when it happens again. You know, something that that's deep to me to know that this took place twenty six years ago. That's like that's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen too long ago. Mm-hmm. Twenty six years ago, this happened here on this date, and you know. Uh, and like you say, you don't want to see history repeat itself. So what is what's something that the community or uh, what's something that further journalists can do to, you know, at least keep us astray from this happening again? I think we got to expose uh, the truth everywhere we see it. And we got to stop ta- as journalists. Um, we got to uh, stop taking such a this this whole unbiased approach. I mean, it, we, we getting murdered out here, man. We getting hurt. How, how are you? How can you report? on the murder of people who look like you and could be you and do it from a bi- unbiased point of view. There's no way I can be unbiased talking about people who are trying to kill me, right? But it is what it is, and it's real, so we got we to gotta take that passion and, and, and speak, speak truth to power. And as far as the community, um, man, we got a lot of issues to work out, and we got to start working them out ASAP because the other side is, is working on working them out for us. So we're about to play another clip, and here... Uh, we hear some of Johan's conversation with Dr. Marsha Chatelain, who she's a professor at Georgetown University now, but back in 97, she was just a high school in Chicago, and the Leonard Clark story really impacted her, just like it did Johan's. And Johan's was really struck by what Dr. Chatelain had to say about selling out. Black life is a series of negotiations that force us to evaluate what our life is worth. Damn. Black life is a series of negotiations that force us to evaluate what our life is worth. Some days I'm still mad as hell at these black folks who sided with little Frankie and his father. And other days I'm like, they victims too. Don't get me wrong. They made choices. They chose to rock with powerful white men over an innocent little black boy. But why do we live in a society where black folks got to make these calculations? So I'd love to hear about, you know, how you feel about this conversation, you know, connecting with someone who back in 97, what she was at at that time, and also just the decision to include your life story and yourself. Uh, It's 
the relevance and that weaved in and out of your investigative reporting and your memories. Yeah, um, those questions are are they definitely tied together well too. It was it was a uh, refreshing and validating and enlightening and inspiring to talk to uh, Dr. Chatlin um, because this was someone who was. This case stayed with her. You know what I mean? As we spoke, she I, when and when she remarked on on how 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 closely this story stayed with her, it gave her nightmares as a child, right? Um, and she was a young, she was obviously younger than I was. She was in high school. I was twenty three years old, um, and it, and it impacted her greatly. And so that was just that was big. Uh, and then and then you know that that quote. Kind of just like the universe came together. God conspired to work for this podcast, man, because that quote just just was the 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 cherry on top. It was like, okay, you've articulated what I've been trying to put to words for quite a long time. So it was evident that this thing and these these concepts and dynamics have been on her mind for a long time. It was evident that she'd been given a lot of thought, and she's brilliant. So it just came together masterfully. Um, in terms of adding my own story, that kind of ties into the. To the sellout portion too, because I, I addressed it in the podcast um, that you know, uh, you know, I sold dope, and and, um, and that ain't uh, as 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 a person about his people, um, knowing what we up against as as black folks in America. That's that's ain't nothing revolutionary or uh, positive about that, um, and so uh, by definition, by my own definition, uh, given what I know, right, given what I know and where my heart is. It's a sellout move, right? Um, in terms of uh, in terms of kind of looking at the at the brothers that I, I considered and labeled sellouts at the time as victims themselves, you know, it makes me think about the argument that goes back and forth when when black folks uh, are up in arms and outraged about the lives we losing at the hands of police and white folks and white supremacy and racism, uh, we we get responded we get responses like you know well, what about Black folks killing each other in the streets all the time, and that's something we deal with, and it's hard. It's hard for us to deal with because these are our children, and we understand, you know, how how lost, um, impoverished, ignorant, uneducated, uninformed, and led astray they are. And so, you know, when you look at that, you realize they're victims, and it's and it's and it's a it's a heck of a dynamic to be sitting here threatened and and sometimes in fear people who are basically your children because you still love them, right? And and so you see the victimhood there, right? And so uh and so you forgive them to a degree, right? And so it's different than than forgiving the folks who put all of y'all in the situation, right? And so, you know, in America, man, everybody sells out to a degree every day. I mean, we talk about low-wage workers and and then we go buy from Amazon. Right. And so uh, but when you are like among the most oppressed the population, among the most oppressed population here and, and you the center of that oppression, oppression's target, then, uh, you know, those moves are just more, more, um, more striking, more, more, um, more dynamic. It kind of feels like part of how you wrap the show. And I won't, you know, not to not to any spoilers because we couldn't recommend the show more, but. You know, you, you get into the idea of racial reconciliation and the possibility of it is key. I mean, that also is the show's, how the show starts. I mean, people pivot immediately from paying attention to the crime to talking about 
racial reconciliation and kind of answering that question. And, you know, we only got a few minutes left, but I really just want to hear you kind of talk to that. Marshall Chatlin speaks to that profoundly as well. And I'm going to sum it up real quick. If I take your legs from you, it's my job to push you around every day because you can't never get nowhere for the rest of your life because of me. And I can, and I'm the reason you can't. So I owe you that. And until I show that I'm willing to give you that, it ain't really no reconciliation because I'm not I'm not being real about it. I'm I'm doing it when it's convenient. Um Yeah, so so uh the possibility of racial reconciliation rests in the hands of uh of white America and um and the folks who uh who are responsible for this this whole ugly picture. Um real quick. Uh, I appreciate you for, for, for pushing the podcast. Um, really need people to uh, rate and review it wherever they watch it because that's that's going to send us up through the charts, and we kind of ascend in any way. And so um, we just got word of that today, which feels good. And so the more people rate and review it, um, and don't, you know, and, and, and uh, the, the better it'll do and the more the word will get out and the more we can have these conversations. You got to let people know the title again, my brother, and the website, all that, so they can find and rate. My man, you didn't see nothing. It's on Apple. It's on Stitcher. It's on Spotify, usgaudio.com. You can go there and get it from whatever device you're working with. You didn't see nothing. Hosted by me, Johannes LaCour, produced by the Invisible Institute and USG Audio, usgaudio.com, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Can people find you on the net as well? Yeah, I'm on, um, I just got on Twitter at, at Johannes LaCour. I'm, I'm on Instagram at Johannes LaCour, Facebook, Johannes LaCour. Um, and I'm just starting to get more engaged with social media. I've been gone, you know what I'm saying? And so, uh, and I've been, you know, I'm, I've been, um, but I'm out here now. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm there. I like to hear, man. I greatly appreciate you taking our time to stop on by, share your story, uh, share the podcast. You ain't seen nothing. Beautiful. Like I said, the episodes, it, the way it's put together is amazing and it makes you want more. It literally sounds like a film on audio. Yes. <laughs> hey, man, that's what I wanted. Hey, look, I told Sarah Geis. One of our producers, when I first started, I ain't know nothing about a podcast, hadn't heard one. I'm like, I, I want this thing to feel like a, a classic 90s hip-hop album meets a motion picture, man. And we did it. Yes. We did it, y'all. But, um, man, thank you, man. Thank you for having me, man. And thank you for giving this story some shine. No problem, man. Chicago, that was your Hans LaCour. Y'all definitely go check out. You didn't see nothing. It is out right now. Uh, you'll be able to run back this audio and visual real soon. Just go to Vocalo.org and keep it.